Turn with me in your copy of the Word of God this morning to Mark chapter 6. Let me get my place there. We are going to be considering this morning the very solemn account of the death of a righteous man. Some passages in the Bible are upbeat and uh, exciting. I need to be up. Hello, test. Okay, some passages in the Bible are exciting uh, and upbeat and joyful, and some passages in the Bible are not. And uh, this this happens to be one of those that are not. But I, but I want to what I want to try to help you see this morning is that there are great truths and great joy uh, that that is that is to be garnered from understanding even the somber passages of the Bible. Uh, if you will remember, if you will remember with me to last to last week, the last passages that we looked at here, the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 6. And if you weren't with us, uh, you can kind of glance back at that. Um, but essentially, it's the story of Jesus returning to his hometown and experiencing great hostility and rejection from his own people, from his family, from his parents. Uh, more than likely from his brothers and sisters immediately, those that previously in the story had thought he was out of his mind, um, but also from the, the, the people who knew him, that knew him as a child, that knew him uh, as a teenager, as a young adult, and then uh, had, had begun to hear about the things that he was doing, and they were, not, uh, they were not convinced that he was any more than a charlatan or any more than a magician, um, he was just Jesus to them. And so he went back to his hometown and experiences great hostility. And then in the midst of that story, we hear that uh, it's, it's into that context, that culture of hostility, that he appoints his 12 disciples to go into the other areas. So that there is some sense that if they will not listen to us here, then we will go to where they will hear. But there is also a sense in which he is helping us to see and understand that in, no matter where we go, we are being sent into great hostility. That Jesus experienced it in his own ministry and that we are going to experience it in our ministry. And it is on the heels of those teachings last week and in the previous that this passage this morning comes to us with an example of just what that hostility looks like. And it's often that the Bible teaches in this way. Um, the mindset in that day would have been that they would often teach by teaching or giving the explanation and then providing an example. So that it was, you know, sort of teaching example, teaching example. And even, even in the structure of the Old Testament, the ordering, the original ordering of the books in the Hebrew Bible, like the ordering of the Old Testament in my Hebrew Bible at home, is different than in our English Bibles. We've ordered it for certain reasons, but they ordered it for certain reasons. And in the ordering of the original ordering in the Hebrew Bible, they order things to be teaching and an example, even in the way that their books are. So there will be a book that teaches a truth or a reality, or many of them, and then there will be a book that gives an example or a story about how that reality is fleshed out. And so that's what we see this morning, that it's on the heels of those teachings about a culture of hostility that uh, into which the gospel goes, that we are given an example of what that hostility looks like. And it is the accounting of the death, uh, the remembering of the death of John the Baptist. Now, let me, as we read this, let me just sort of perk your interest in your mind a bit. This is not when this happens. So that this is going to be, if you will, a flashback in the midst of the story. So that 
Well, you'll see it as we read, but, but this is not chronologically. John the Baptist would have been killed, and he's remembering when this happened. So that, just keep that in your mind that this is going to be somewhat of a flashback. So let's just go ahead and read the text together. We're going to begin in Mark chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 14 down through the end of verse 30. And before we read, let's ask the Lord to open our minds. Father in heaven, we pray in and through your son, Jesus Christ, that you would hear us today and that you would grant our requests. Father... Uh, And the request in this moment is that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes to the truth of your word, that you would help us to see this passage uh, in all of its glory, uh, that we would that we would be pressed to think about our own lives, our own situations and where we stand with you. And uh, Father, that you would help us to see uh, that we need to be prepared to die for the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Mark chapter six, beginning in verse 14. We read that now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. Now let me let me clarify a little bit. What was it that King Herod heard specifically? If you go back to the passage we were speaking of, but specifically in verses seven through thirteen, when it recounts the sending out of the twelve disciples into the sort of surrounding cities and communities, if you will, around. Jesus' homeland of Nazareth, it probably, even though they would have been sent two by two, it probably would have taken them maybe four to six months to take this journey and to go into ministry to all of these different areas. So there would have been this prolonged period of time of what we read back in those verses where they were doing a great many things. They were doing healing many and they were doing miraculous signs among many. And so they were taking the ministry of Jesus. They were taking his abilities, his claims, his message. They were taking his gospel and they were going out into the surrounding area. It would have taken place over sort of a long extended period of time. And in that region was this guy, Harry. Um, and, and that's who we're, and I'm going to clarify a little bit about who that is, but that's who is being, speaking of, being spoken of here, that now King Herod heard of him or of it. And, and what he heard of is not just what Jesus had done, but all of the testimony of what had been taking place in that four to six month time, whatever the time span was, when the disciples went out two by two. So he heard of him, for his name had become well known, that is in that area. And he said, that being Herod, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are working him. So see, John the Baptist was already dead at the time he hears of what's going on. Others said, no, it is Elijah. And others said it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, am I beheaded? He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, For he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and a holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him glad. He did many things and heard him gladly. Then Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced before them and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. 
Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head out on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. This is a horrible story. Uh, It is a story that is filled with wickedness and with evil. And it is full of sin and debauchery. Uh, But it is a story that I believe there are a great many things that we can learn from it. Um, And so I I mentioned to you a moment ago that I was going to clarify this King Herod. It's very interesting that we're given this title that he is King Herod. He was not actually king. Um, This is at the time that uh, this would have been one of the sons of Herod the Great. Uh, There are four Herods, I believe, in the scriptures. And this would have been one of the sons of Herod the Great. So he would have been known as what's called the Tetrarch. It's not important that you know that or that you understand much about it. Other than to say, he was, in some sense, a ruler or a powerful official. He did have a kingdom, if you will. He did have rule over a certain area. But he was not a monarch in the sense that he was the supreme king or the supreme ruler of this enormous kingdom and area. So um, I think maybe there's even a bit of... I think maybe there's even a bit of sarcasm here that that maybe it's now here is this King Herod or at least the one who thought that he was king. Because what it's trying to help us to see is that he really fancied himself and he really thought a great deal of himself. And, And I think that, you know, not that this is a sermon about that, but I do think that there's something to be said that in all aspects of sin, the root of the problem can just about always be boiled down to pride. Even if it's simply the pride and arrogance of being your own God. Why do we do sin? Because we like it. Why do we do sin? Because we think we can, because we justify it. Why do we do the things that we do? Because us, right? So, so that sort of in the most basic sense, I, I think that there's always an arrogance and a pride about our, our life of sin. And I think that what you see here is at least an illusion because of what's fixing to follow in the story, that this is a guy who thought he was king. He thought a, a great deal of himself. He was not. He was just one of the sons of the ruler. He was a tetrarch in the area. Um, And he did have some rule and some say over some certain region. But what we begin to learn, and what I want to think about first is I want us to see John's determination, John the Baptist's determination, Herod's dilemma, and then to ask the question, where are we? Where are we? So first, you know, John's determination. There is this guy, King Herod. And the first thing that we seem to learn about him in this story is that he fears John the Baptist exceedingly. It's very interesting that this this weird dressing guy who lived out in the wilderness, that lived this predominantly solitary, strange existence, who ate locusts and wild honey and wore strange clothes and was like a you know, just an it's just an odd guy that was a preacher, a forerunner of Christ. Who, who went around making ready or preparing the way we read about at the very beginning of Mark, the way for the Messiah that was coming for Christ, prefiguring him and, and, and preparing the way for him. This, this preacher of the message of repentance that the kingdom of God has come and is at hand and that one is coming after him that is mightier than he is. And, and, and this ruler is terrified of him. It, it's a very interesting situation. But he comes to him and says, 
He hears about what all is taking place, both in Jesus and in his disciples. And the first thing we hear is that, oh, he says, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. And then he's going to begin to recount. Others said, no, it's Elijah. Others said it's the prophet or one like the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, no, 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 this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. So he's paranoid about this guy, John. He's killed him a long time ago. He's been dead for a while, and he is still paranoid and guilt-ridden over what took place with him. I think he still fears him, and he fears his legacy. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison, and it goes and tells us all these things about the story, why it happened. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So they held it against him, and, 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 and he ends up killing him. And, and then it says that he thought all of these things, though, and let me, let me find the reference, because he feared him, right? Why did he put him in prison? Why did he want him dead? Why, why all of these things? And why was he so paranoid? Because he feared him. Well, this is really interesting. What is it about this preacher that he feared? Well, let's, let's consider then first John's determination. I want, you to, I want you to get in your mind the situation that John the Baptist put himself in. He's going before a ruler and proclaiming to him his sinfulness. Now, let's just think about that in the context of our own culture. The preachers that we know, if you turn on TBN or if you turn on the TV or, quite frankly, if you go to to churches all across the Mississippi Gulf Coast, even right here in our own backyard this morning, and you listen to the sermons that come from pulpits, one of the questions that should enter into our minds is, how many of those pastors are going to proclaim to ordinary people the reality and the gravity of their sinfulness? And to call them to account for their wickedness and to point out independently and individually what they are doing that is, that is offending God. You know, not many, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not necessarily advocating that we begin to call out individuals by name. But listen, what I want you to see is that John the Baptist was determined, he was determined to carry the truth of the word of God at any cost. He was a determined guy. So that there were all sorts of messages in the day. I mean, there were all sorts of ministries at that time. Jesus was healing people and certainly calling them to account. But John the Baptist had a unique ministry. He went about and he called people to account for their wickedness. And it did not matter if you were the lowest of the low, or as we see in this passage, if you were the wealthiest and the highest and the most noble of the high. What are we told? Well, Herod is involved in some heinous sin. And we're told that he is... Uh, he has taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, to be honest, this was not that uncommon in that day. And the problem was not honestly that it was his brother's wife. The problem was that, and it's really complicated, and I'm not going to try to explain it because I'm sure I'll get it twisted and backwards. But, but if you do your research, what you find is that not only was he his brother Philip's wife, by virtue of who his dad was, he was all, she was also his niece, so he married his sister-in-law slash niece. And the problem was that according to the Old Testament that all of the people in this time would have known and all people in his area, according to the Old Testament and to the Levitical law, to marry one's niece would have been a defilement of the moral code that God had given. And so he had publicly and knowingly and willingly violated the commandments of God 
And John the Baptist was going to be sure that he knew it. So that's pretty interesting. So there is this, there is this ruler. He takes his sister-in-law slash niece. He makes all of the people angry. But it's almost as if there's no one willing to stand up and say anything to him in their outrage about his wickedness, about his sinfulness, about his hypocrisy, except for John the Baptist. But this guy John... With his great determination, he comes on the scene and he begins to preach. Not that Jesus loves you, and in some respect he would have, and not, in, in many respects probably not even grace, but, but that there is one that is mightier than I, and you are offending him. And, and he comes before Herod and he says, it is not okay that you are doing these things. Look at what it says in verse 18, because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful. That was not the law of the land. That was the moral law of God. From the Old Testament, he probably would have opened it before him and said, look here, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It is not lawful for her to be married to you. You have violated the commandments of God, and it's not okay. Now, here's what I want you to see. John is very determined and is in this very interesting situation, and it puts Herod in a deep dilemma. Most people see Herod's dilemma in this passage as the most superficial dilemma. There are actually two. They look at this passage and they read what happens next and they think Herod finds himself in this great dilemma. Do I kill John the Baptist or do I not? Because he's taken him and he's thrown him in prison because he is preaching against his lifestyle. He is holding him accountable for his violations of God's moral law and he puts him in prison and he holds him there. And then at this party that he's having with all of these nobles, with all of these people who are, uh, you know, that he is trying to impress and that he wants to see, uh, he wants them to see him as highly as he sees himself and it's feeding his ego. And they end up having, notice they end up having this uh, wicked, vile uh, dance, if you will. And I don't want to be any more necessarily explicit than that, but this was a men's only dance. Notice that her mother was not present. She has to leave out to go ask her mother what it is that she would request. Uh, they believe this would have been Salome, if you go and look at your history, but they believe she would have been around 15 or 16 years of age and that this would have been a, uh, this would have been a raunchy, uh, sex-fueled, men-only uh, time party. Whatever you want to say. It wasn't a good situation. And in the midst of this intoxication with this girl, he makes this unbelievable promise to her. And he tells her, I mean, he is, what does it say that he is taken with her? He is, he is drunk, it seems, with her. And he tells her, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And then he clarifies, he said, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. I mean, if she was smart, she would ask for half the kingdom. <laughs> I mean, she would have been the second most powerful person, e- equal with the most powerful person in all of the kingdom, but she didn't. And so she leaves out being a young girl, and she asks her mother what it is that, that she should ask. And her mother, who is sick and tired of hearing the message that John has to preach, she comes and she says, ask for John the Baptist's head. And she goes back in, and that's exactly what she asked for. And then it says in the text that Herod is sorry. He is grieved. And so there's this dilemma, this superficial dilemma. What, what am I supposed to do? Do I kill him or do I not kill him because of the promise that I've made? And as we saw at the beginning, this King Herod, or less, at least that he thought himself of, of himself as King Herod. And so he doesn't want to 
sort of bring shame upon his name and upon his oath and upon his promise that he's made in front of all of these other people. He can't go back on his word. All of these nobles have seen it. They all heard him promise this to her, and they all heard her request. And so he's forced in this dilemma to decide, well, I have to honor my word. And so he grants her request. And it's very interesting that John the Baptist probably did not have any idea that it was coming. He's sitting down in prison where he's been for some time, and he sends guards, and they go down, they take him up, and they take his head off. He may not have ever known what was taking place. He may not have ever known any reason why, never been given any type of explanation, never been given a hearing before the king, the ruler. They walked in and they they cut his head off. All John the Baptist knew is that he had been in prison for preaching the truths of the of the law of God to this to this ruler, and he lost his head for it. And so they come in and they take his head off. They bring it back up. Uh, you know, I see a lot of you kind of, women are kind of grimacing. I mean, this is a gruesome story. You're shaking your head. Keep in mind that two women came up with this plan. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it was Herodias and it was her daughter. I mean, this is wickedness on a whole other level. And it's gruesome and it's gross. And so he's, he's put in this dilemma by his sin, by his lust. Guys, be careful. Look where lust will get you. Right? And he's put in this predicament. But what I want you to see is, is that he was in a far greater predicament. He was in a far greater dilemma. In fact, Herod, Herod Antipas, he was at a crossroads at this point in his life. One of the questions that this passage begs that you may or may not even have thought of up to this point is why was John the Baptist still in prison? And why was he still being given a platform to preach? Let's go back to the text. Back to the back to verse. Um, let's go back to verse sixteen. This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. And then it's going to begin to recount. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her, because John had said to Herod, "It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife." Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and a holy man and protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Isn't that interesting? He feared him and he heard him gladly. And the idea here is most people believe, rightly so, that it was while he put him in prison and after he put him in prison that he would either send for him from the dungeon to come before him to preach his message. Or he went to the dungeon and stood before him to listen. So that in a sense, he was both attracted to this guy and attracted to his message and repulsed by it at the same time. The language, we miss it. The language in the original text here is the language of being at a crossroads, of, of, of having... Two different pathways put before you and being torn in two directions and not knowing where to go. Being filled with doubt. I think that I think the King Herod was at a, a crossroads in his life. He was at a huge dilemma. Why? Because he was being confronted with the claims of the gospel of Christ. The truth of the word of God. And he was attracted to it and he hated it all at the same time. Haven't you been there? When the word of God called you to account for your wickedness and your unrighteousness. When, when the claims of the gospel weighed heavy in your life, but you were not sure if you were prepared, if you were ready to make the decision to trust in the Lord, to repent of your sin, to turn from who you had been, to, 
you're, you're at a crossroads. You're, you're at this meeting place where the Holy Spirit is working on you and is pulling you and is attracting you and doing what you cannot do for yourself. And your sin is also dragging you down and fighting against and you're torn in your heart because you love your sin, but you are, for whatever crazy reason, attracted to this message. Listen, I'm baffled by this. I have had people who lived in open, blatant, unrepentance and rebellion against God, grave sin that everybody knew about in the church that I would preach against from the Word of God when we got to those places in the Bible unashamedly and they would come week in and week out and sit and listen to me preach. It used to blow my mind. I think they were right where Herod is. I think in in this passage it's unbelievable that he heard him and he heard him gladly. But he feared him because he was a holy man, because he was a just man. Look, and he protected him. You see, Herod had not killed him. He could have killed him any time he wanted to. But he put him in prison and he continued to listen. I don't want to go too far, but I think at this point in Herod's life, I think there was still hope for him. I think there was still hope for him. He, he was torn, but he seemed pliable. He seemed movable. He seemed to be impacted and affected. And there's going to be some grave implications for this. And let me just go ahead and kind of point you to one. Let me show you and let me help you to see that this is not always the case for King Herod. This is the same Herod, Herod Antipas, that in a few short chapters, Jesus, the innocent son of God, is going to be dragged before. And he is... He is no longer going to be captivated. He is no longer going to be moldable. He is no longer going to be moved by him. He's going to mock him. There's a change. And, and there, there's, a, there's a dark change. So there's John's determination. There's Herod's dilemma or dilemmas, if you will. And then very quickly, what or where are we? Where are we? Let me ask you this. Are you sitting here this morning at the same type of crossroad with the gospel? Where, where you're full of doubt and you're just not sure and you're waiting on someone to convince you of all of these claims that the Bible is making and that Jesus is pressing into your heart? Are you full of doubt and unsure about which road to take? Are, are you like Herod this morning? Unsure and unclear Let me encourage you, make the decision today because you may not always be interested in making it. There may come a time when, like Herod, you are no longer moldable and you are no longer moved by the claims of the gospel. And how many decisions are there in our life, not just to believe in Jesus and to trust him, but for us Christians, when the Holy Spirit of God compels us to do or to not do something, to make a a decision that's a difficult decision, and we find ourselves at a crossroads, not knowing what to do, where we are attracted to what he's saying and we want to hear it and we want to listen, but at the same time we don't want to do it and we are moved to not move. Let me encourage you, if those decisions are weighing heavy on your heart, make them now. Make them now. Do the things that God is compelling you to do today because you may not always feel compelled to do them. Ultimately, Herod was hardened and he mocked the Lord Jesus. Where are we this morning? 
A second question, are we misled like Herod was, and this is much like what I was just advocating for, are we misled into thinking that we are the master of our own sin? Let me tell you something. People tend to think time and time and time again, the reason that they tarry in making these decisions, the reason that so many people put off believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin, and do like Herod did and stand hardened against it at this crossroads is because they think, oh, well, I'm really in control. I'll just believe next week. I'm not, I'm not going to get too far off into X or Y or whatever it may be. We, we tend to think that we are in control and the master of our own sin. Maybe to put it more pointedly, we think that we are the master of our own heart. But as Proverbs tells us, a heart is deceitful above all things. It's incredibly wicked. Who can know it? You can't. We tend to think that we are totally in control. And that we can make those decisions and we can believe those truths whenever we get ready to do so. But what we need to understand is that there is a progression to sin. And then thirdly, one of the realities about this is that unconfessed sin will ultimately harden our heart to Jesus. See, one of the great practical applications of this story about what happened with John the Baptist and with Herod is that if we think we are the master of our own heart and that we will decide when we get good and ready, we will, we will face the dilemma and make the decision eventually. What we fail to realize is that we're not the master of our own heart, that our sin and wickedness unconfessed before the Lord may ultimately harden our heart to him and the dilemma will disappear. Have you, have you ever seen someone who maybe the Lord was dealing with and they were wondering and asking and trying, you know, to be a better person and they were obviously torn between the truths of the gospel and the wickedness and the unrighteousness in their own life and there was, they were interested, but as they continue to reject and as time goes by, 10, 15, 20 years later, they're just hard and cold. They have no interest. They're making no effort, and there is no dilemma in their life over the decisions pertaining to Christ. See, we tend to think that we can just that we can just put off what the Lord puts on us indefinitely. But like King Herod, let me encourage you, make those decisions today because there may come a time, there will come a time when the dilemma will disappear. And then finally from this passage, one more question, where are we? Are we at a crossroads with the gospel? Are we falsely believing that we are in control of our own hearts and of our sin? Are we, are we dangerously close to having our hearts darkened, hardened, to the dilemma actually leading us where we don't have any care, where, where we are not interested? And then finally, do we believe that the claims of the word of God are worth dying for? Because see, Herod's not the only person in this text that we need to learn from. Remember, this comes in the context of sending the disciples out and Jesus going out into a culture of hostility to the truth of the word of God. Where people do not want to hear it. Where Herod, though he was somewhat attracted to it, he ultimately rejected it and it cost John the Baptist his life. One preacher said, this is the message here. Come to Jesus and lose your head. 
Believe in Christ, follow Him, preach His Word, love it, understand it, live it, and hold it before people, and then you will die. Do we really believe that the claims of the Word of God are worth dying for? I mean, what would you die for? I think that I would die for my wife and children. You know, I think of my life, what are the things that I would give up my life for, that I would stand in the gap, that I would die for? Do we really believe that the claims of God's word, that the truth of the gospel about Jesus, that it is a message that though hostile to the world, it is worth our life? Because that then leads us to the second question. John the Baptist believed that it was. And so he took the message to Herod because... Not only did he believe it was worthy of dying for, he was ready to die for it. And those are different. Do you believe that it's worth dying for? But then, are you ready to die for it? Because until you get ready to give up your life for the sake of Christ, you're not going to make a difference. One of the things that we see here is the incredible impact that John the Baptist had. A ruler in, in their time, a pagan king, if you will, is brought to a crossroad with the gospel and with the claims of God's word and and brought to a place where he is forced to see his own unrighteousness because John the Baptist was willing to die for the word of God. That's why. So when you take the big picture of the scheme together, had nobody been willing to go before him and give their life to, to tell him that he was living in violation of God's law and offending a holy God, then he might have lived his life never being brought to the crossroads. And when we understand that the truths of God's word are worthy of dying for, and then we are prepared to die for them, then like John the Baptist, we can go before rulers and kings and we can bring about a crossroads in their life where they are forced to believe or to reject, to be saved or to be damned. Guys, that's making an impact. That's making a difference. You may say, well, he didn't really make that much of a difference. Herod did not believe. But man, what a difference he made. It's a huge difference. Herod did not believe and that unbelief is his own. And he will pay the penalty for that unbelief. He did pay the penalty for that unbelief. John is not going to pay the penalty for his unbelief because John's hands are are clean of his blood, so to speak. He took the message to him. Where are we this morning? John was a determined minister of the gospel. It brought about a great dilemma in Herod's life. And I wonder, are we there today? I mean... Are we with John ready to die for the gospel? I hope that you are. Are we with Herod? I mean, I mean, are, are you sort of superficially involved in Christianity? Doubting, you know, wondering, but at a crossroads where you don't really want to hear the message, but you still go every week and listen. Praise God for that, that dilemma. But let me encourage you to deal with the dilemma today because there may come a day that the dilemma will disappear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of this message and um, the great reality that you you put a dilemma in each of our hearts to to love ourselves and our sin, to, to follow ourselves and our sin, or to repent and believe. 
Thank you for men like John the Baptist that stand before people and hold them accountable for their wickedness and for their unrighteousness. And I pray that in love, we would be a little more like John the Baptist, that we would be willing to go into the world and to show people the truth of the Scripture, that we would set before people the law of God and their offense to that law, and that we would then offer them the grace of Jesus. Father, help us to be willing to die for the gospel as you send us into a culture of hostility. Lord, may we go gladly. Father, I also pray this morning that if there are dilemmas in our life, decisions that you are impressing upon our hearts, Father, things that we are torn, and, and though we don't really want to hear it, we listen and we listen carefully. God, in those situations, I pray that you would help us to decide to follow you today, that, that we would make those decisions, that we would do today what we may not be able to do tomorrow. Father, move among us this morning. Call us to righteousness and to repentance. Bring about forgiveness and give us faith in Christ that we would be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.